is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The long-awaited rollout of Honolulu's rail system, Skyline, albeit a partial rollout, has put the spotlight on traffic from the west side, and in particular how it could dovetail with work getting underway at the shipyard at Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam. It's the largest military construction project at $2.8 billion and is set to modernize the shipyard. Top brass are meeting to discuss the short-term and long-term fixes to the traffic snarls at the gate. We talked to uh, Captain uh, Mark Solhaney recently, and he's very familiar with traffic on Oahu and has served five tours here. As you know, we've got a very big base, uh, 12 different annexes. It's a joint base that we share with the Air Force, so we have a full airfield that's joint use with the airport and of course we have a port facility so we've got 93,000 people that come onto the base every day and as you mentioned we have one of the largest shipyards in the Navy and we've got a lot of shift workers there so for us trying to you know increase ridership on the skyline is kind of our goal and we're trying to find different ways to encourage ridership, especially with our workforce. So, you know, I was part of the opening ceremony, which was phenomenal. I had a great time, had an opportunity to get on Skyline, and I was very, very impressed. So what we're doing is we're working with DTS to at the Aloha Stadium stop, as you know, with a bus route system in the morning during peak hours to get our workforce onto the base from the Aloha Stadium stop and then to go around the base at different work areas, if you will. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. We're monitoring that. We've got all kinds of other incentives as well. Yes, I understand that you are helping to subsidize the uh, holo cards. You know, I happen to be at the Halava station watching as the buses pulled in from Pearl Harbor. And, you know, it was thin. I maybe saw a dozen on one particular bus, uh, and a lot of the workers were scurrying off to catch the train. But, you know, one worker I talked to was pleased because he just parks his car, jumps on the train, and then takes the bus to his workplace. And he said he's about a minute walk away. So it's super convenient for him and it's less stress. So the, I guess the, the, the thing is to be able to convince other workers that they can do this. Yeah. You know, one thing that we're working on right now is we have the largest military construction project in the history of the Navy that just started last week. And it'll start in earnest here in the next three to six months. And that's going to be a lot of additional workers. So we're working right now with the Aloha Stadium folks to lease that parking lot and folks to drive in there and then take the rail and then hop off the rail and get on the bus and then get onto the base. So that's that's one other area that we're, we're looking at right now. We also have a transportation incentive program for any active duty military or DOD civilians uh, that work on the base. We're trying to get that information out and then as well as changing the bus route because right now it's solely focused on the shipyard uh, and we need to work with DTS a little bit more to get some of our larger areas, which, you know, our Pacific Air Force headquarters has a lot of employees as well as a couple other areas on the base. So, you know, it just got started, right? It's going to take us a little bit of time with DTS to get those details down and to encourage ridership. But I, I tell you, for me, is the game changer is the Makalapa stop. And I'm sure you're tracking once the next section opens up, which really is is from the stadium through the airport into the bus terminal. That's where we're going to have a lot of attention because now that stop is right outside my office. I'm actually looking at the train stop right now from my office. And so what we're looking at is how do we design that gate, which is mainly a vehicular gate, how do we transform that? to a almost a pedestrian gate that is taking that Makalapa stop. And then how do we develop our, our own base shuttle service, right, and really utilize that? So that's kind of a game changer for the base. And so now this is between now and then, it's just a process of trying to get people, their culture to change a little bit. And how do we streamline the DTS bus system and the transportation incentive program? And how do we get folks on the rail now. So that's the big long view for us. And have you had any discussions with the city about whether they might be able to open that station sooner than later, you know, as opposed to doing it, okay, we're going to give you the last, you know, nine uh, altogether with a bow all neat. Can't they do it incrementally? No, unfortunately, it's part of kind of phase two, if you will. And that phase will open up all at the same time, all the stops along that next phase. 
which is really from Aloha Stadium to the bus terminal. It will be opened up. And, and what I'm tracking right now is about two years from now uh, is what the anticipated you know, initial operating capability date is. So for me, it gives us a little more time. We'd like it sooner, but we also don't mind having a little bit of time to, to get some of the military construction projects designed that are going to maybe change the configuration of that gate to make it easier to facilitate transportation from the gate throughout the base. And and we're looking at everything, you know, a little bit of a parking structure. We're looking at a base shuttle. We're looking at, you know, bicycle parking, you know, electric vehicles, all kinds of different ideas to move people from that station throughout the base. So so hopefully uh, we'll line up with the timeline as they open up in about two years. I was struck when I was at the station the other day about the different modes of transportation. I mean, I saw a like a unicycle thing and, uh, you know, electric scooters, electric bikes, regular bikes, you know, motorized wheelchairs. So it, it was really interesting just to see the variety of ways that people were getting to the station. Yeah. And, and we're working on a lot of different things. And there's more and more construction coming to the base. And so... And actually, coincidentally, I have a meeting with all the different leaders on the base, explaining to them what the future looks like. And what the future looks like is a lot of construction and a lot more people coming to the base. So now it's getting the leaders on the base to communicate to their workforce that, hey, we collectively have to change our culture and mindset because the gate traffic's only going to get worse right? Unless we change to different forms of transportation, like you just mentioned, you know, and, and whether that's a combination of the rail, a bicycle, you know, a, a shuttle service, it's, it's a mind shift based on the future plans for the installation in terms of the joint base and the future development of the space. Well, I know that the, the rider, the shipyard rider that I talked to had said that you folks were trying to make things at the gate a bit easier. There was some construction going on, I think, at one of the bridges, and it was creating a kind of a bottleneck, but that they finally got, I think, some security or police or somebody to help be the traffic cop, you know, because we all know how it is. The gates can sometimes be a real bear to get through. Yeah, so, you know, as you'd mentioned earlier, this is my fifth tour here, and this is my second installation command. I came from Naval Air Station Key West different set of problems. But here, there's a highway going into every gate, right? So folks are going from 55 miles an hour all the way to the gate. So what we've already done since I've been here working with staff and folks that have actually looked at this previously before I got here, we've already changed the configurations of the two main gates. And as you alluded to, we've fixed the bridge that you're talking about. We've changed the paint scheme and we've worked with the Hawaii Department of Transportation to change some of the signage to better flow traffic through. And if you notice now, as you're coming at the base, you will see signs now that say Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. And then there's a yellow sticker, if you will, on the sign that says military access only. Mm. Because what, what we get is we get a lot of tourists that are going to the USS Arizona that are misdirected by, you know, GPS, if you will, or we get a lot of airport folks turnarounds which if we have to turn somebody around that doesn't have base access, that that takes a lot of time. So the signage, you know, we're very grateful and thankful to the Department of Transportation to to start, you know, warning folks that, hey, you need military base access to do this. So turn turn off now, right, right, before before you get to the main gate. So all those little things add up to helping reduce congestion at the gates, Mm -hmm. wait times. And then I think with you know public transportation in the future here, and with a you know modified installation development plan, it takes all of that in consideration. We're going to reduce the workload at the, at the main gate for sure. That was uh, Joint Base uh, Pearl Harbor Hickam Commander Captain Mark Solhaney, who we talked to last week about plans to ease the traffic in and out of Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. Support for HPR comes from AES Hawaii, bringing renewable energy to residents throughout the islands. Learn more about its new Waikoloa Solar Plus storage facility and other statewide projects at aeshawaiienergy.com. 
Finding a primary care doctor that is accepting new patients is not the easiest these days. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a local doctor who has plans on how to make it easier than ever to find your own personal provider to see you in person right here in the islands. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. A pilot program to charge motorists based on their mileage is about to kick off, and electric car owners will be the next guinea pigs. State Transportation Director Ed Sniffen joined us this morning, along with Project Manager Mindy Kimura, to explain what's in store with the road usage pilot program as we start getting away from a gas tax to fund our highways. We've been talking about a more equitable way to collect user charges for the highways, and road user charging is is what we are looking at. We got to thank the legislature because one of the big updates is we have a bill now that allows us to move forward with road user charging, but just for a limited amount of vehicles on the system. It allows us to start up in 2025 on an op- opt-in situation for EVs that goes away in 2028. So opt-in goes away, all EVs are on that road user charge system with a plan to move forward by 2033. And, you know, Mindy, I understand that you gave a presentation um, at a recent transportation conference about what we're doing. So tell us, what do motorists need to know about this pilot? What's going to be happening with the gas tax taxes as of now and where it's going to be moving forward within these next few years? Because the plan is not only for electric vehicles, but will eventually affect all residents of Hawaii. So making sure that they're informed about the program, what to expect within these next few years, and basically just being educated about how this whole system, how it works, and how it's going to benefit them in the future, and how these changes in the state law will progress the transportation system for the future, but also sustain it. The whole idea is that we're trying to get away from gas, get on more toward green energy. And, you know, whether it's hydrogen or electric vehicles, we've got to start somewhere. For us, it shouldn't matter what kind of fuel you're using. When you're using the road system, the impacts are on the miles that you drive. That's the biggest thing. So we wanted to make sure that we put together a system that's more equitable for everybody. We shouldn't be charging you for sitting in congestion. We shouldn't be charging you for the different types of fuel you use. And you shouldn't, you definitely shouldn't be impacted differently by what kind of vehicle you can or cannot afford. So the biggest thing for us is we want to make sure we charge everybody the same. You use it just like any utility, you pay for it. And and that's the biggest thing. In the beginning, we're going to start with electric vehicles because those are the vehicles that are just not paying their fair share on the system uh, through the gas tax. We do have that registration fee on top of that, but we want to make sure that they're paying equitably as well. A lot of them are paying $50 at registration, but they don't drive the miles that would actually cost them $50. So we want to make it fair for them too. That's what the whole system's all about. And so Mindy, uh, talk about where you folks have been as you've been trying to roll this out with the different counties. So first we started off with the Maui County Council about two weeks ago. We spoke to Yukile Sugimura and her staff to kind of get them introduced to where we are and to see if they want to follow along with our program for the county gas tax. Same thing with last week, Tuesday, we went to Hawaii County on Big Island. And then tomorrow, we're going to be talking to the Honolulu City and County Council. And so what is it that EV users need to know? The bill states that EV drivers will be charged at a rate of 0.8 cents per mile. So it's going to be less than a penny per mile, which equates to about $8 per 1,000 miles. Right now in 2025, it's going to be an opt-in program. So EV drivers can either choose to pay the $50 state flat fee or they can use the road usage charge, which is a per mile rate. Starting in 2028, that opt-in fee gets removed, but it's still going to be capped at $50, but it's going to be a purely road usage charge system. So this whole idea really is to get wear and tear fairness on the radar. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And and our goal on this legislation to start with just electric vehicles is to make sure that we all could get used to the system. Um, it's it's going to be a, a change for our users, our drivers, to get used to paying a road user charge versus at the gas at, 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 the, at pump. the pump. At the pump is super simple, right? You don't even know you're paying it. And it's easy for us too because we just collect a check from a Department of Taxation every quarter. So this, this program right now helps all of us get used to it. Because not only do the drivers need to get adjusted, for the state DOT, we got to adjust as well. We got to figure out how we start collecting data, how we enforce, how we make sure that we do the collections running through, and, and how best to interact with the users while we're doing it. Some of them want to pay all at once after their safety checks. Some of them want to pay in installments. We got to figure all that stuff out as we go through this next year um, before we start the program in 2025. Okay, so what's in the way of, you know, for EV uh, owners to sign up now? 
So the, the only thing right now is we don't have the legislation to do it. So legislation only allows us to start in 2025. Uh, that allows us the, the time that's necessary for us to consider, first, how are we going to start tracking everybody? Oh, so for instance, right, you and I talked about before, when we started considering the road user charge, um, how would I best want to be tracked? Do I want a, a, a chip in my car that tracks my movement at all times? So it tells me, tells everybody where I was on what state road, on what county road, and what private road to allow the state to charge me appropriately for all the different segments. A lot of people said no. <laughs> people, for some reason, don't want me to know where they were throughout the day, right? It makes, and it makes sense. So for us started, um, to consider how best to collect information, we wanted to look at systems that are already in place, like this, the safety check process. When you go in your safety check, it's already a process to consider your miles that you've driven throughout the year. So if we take your odometer reading, we compare it to last year's reading, we have the, the number of miles you, rode, you drove. We already have a percentage breakdown between state roads and county roads that, nor that, that people normally drive. So we could share that percentages that way to ensure that we're not double taxing anybody for use of the roadways. I know initially when this project came up, uh, a lot of folks who face long commutes, you know, let's say from the west side on Oahu into town and are sitting in traffic, they're really concerned because, you know, some of them drive big trucks and they're gas guzzlers. And so they would be paying more. And, and so how do you, you know, get around those fears? Just like the existing system today with the gas tax, whether we have a gas tax or a road usage charge, they're filling up their tanks or their vehicles just as much now because they're driving further. So the whole point of this whole road usage charge is these urban and domestic living situations or these households, farther rural drivers end up paying more just because they do have typically studies do show that they have vehicles that are older and have fewer miles per gallon usage. So at this point with the gas tax, they're already paying up most of the gas tax income that we have for the state transportation system. But normally with this road usage charge system, instead of it being based on their miles per gallon, which is already at a disadvantage for them, they're gonna be paying equitably across the board with vehicles that have higher miles per gallons, but may be in closer areas. It's all about equity. Exactly, and that's a big thing. Again, just like we talked about with, uh, we shouldn't care what kind of fuel you're using in your car. We shouldn't care about what, what fuel efficiency you get as well. Um, when we start looking at efficiency across the system, you should be paying just for the mileage you drive. So if you drive more miles, you're going to pay more. But you do that already under the gas tax. Right now, though, what's unfair is if you cannot afford to get a higher efficiency vehicle, you're going to pay more. Um, if you're driving far and you get stuck in congestion a lot, you're going to pay more because you're burning gas while you're sitting in place. With the road user charge system, those go away. Those inequities go away. So you're still going to pay more if you drive more, but you're not going to pay more on top of that because um, because the system is, is set against those that can't afford to go up. Give us a, a snapshot of how many uh, EV users we've got in the state right now. Right now, we have about 20,000 EVs registered throughout the state. And that's, that's of the 1.2 million vehicles or so that we have registered throughout the state. It's a small percentage uh, at this time. So it's perfect for us to start the system, or start up our road user charge system to understand how we're, how we're going to run it. Uh, while we start expanding into the rest of the vehicles by 2033. And the bill is very explicit in saying by 2026, DOT gives a plan to the legislature to ensure that we can get all light duty vehicles into the system by 2023. So <clears throat> that's where we're going to go. That's that's how we're setting up. So 20,000 sounds small now, but we're the, we're the second leading adopter of electric vehicles in the nation. So we know that number is going to go up tremendously. We want to get ahead of it to ensure that we're not putting the onus of funding the system on the backs of those that can't afford to purchase EVs. With the conferences that you folks have been attending, you know, this year, any other state that we're looking at uh, on, you know, their rollout of a program like this? So we've been coordinating with Utah DOT and then also the Eastern Transportation Coalition, studying their programs because right now they have things rolling out and they have live programs, um, especially for Utah DOT. They already have a live program for their electric vehicles and they have a rollout day by 2031. So we're coordinating with them. We're having discussions with other states to figure out exactly what works for their state and what didn't, and then maybe we can learn from them, and also what's been working for Hawaii and what hasn't been. And it's all about our transfer ideas because we're all trying to figure out a way to sustain our transportation system with these gas taxes dwindling because it's happening across the nation. And then what specifically do you need the council 
to do? I mean, you're going to give this presentation. You know, what's the first step that the counties need to take? Well, first, we just want to make sure that they're completely informed about the program so that they're not saying that the state is jumping ahead of them or feeling like they're not part of the discussion. We want to make sure that everyone's involved. And in addition, we want to, for our users, we don't want them to having to pay a road usage charge on top of a gas tax, um, one for the state and one for the counties. So it'd be easier just to have one entire system across the state. But that conversation needs to happen with the counties to make sure that they know that the state is here to support them. We're offering our consultation um, services at the same time that we're rolling out our program and to see if they would like to also join us in this program to help benefit their transportation systems. Yeah, we need to talk about it now because as we move forward, just like the state, we needed legislation to allow us to collect the road user charge. The counties need the same. So if they're on board with moving forward with a road user charge program, especially if we're looking at targeting 2025, same time as the state rolling forward, we'll need legislation this year that will allow the counties to charge a road user charge. So that conversation needs to happen now because there's going to be a lot of education that occurs, and not just from us to the counties, but the, um, the county councils to their constituents as well, to ensure that everybody understands why we're trying to move forward. That was State Transportation Director Ed Sniffen and Road Usage Project Manager Mindy Kimura talking to us about a new pilot road usage project affecting electric vehicle users across the state. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about funding for the Prison Commission and whether they can effectively do their job. It's a story by reporter Kevin Dayton, who has been digging into what works or doesn't in our prisons and jails. Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about this important issue. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, we've been hearing about this. uh, I guess it's called a Correctional System Oversight Commission for some time now. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's, it's a mouthful, but this is something that the legislature itself created uh, back in 2021 or excuse me i think it actually goes back to 2019 and the idea was to the, that keyword being oversight this <laughs> is over the jails and the prisons uh, throughout the state but the problem is is they just have not been getting the funding that they were promised even though they were created by the legislature uh governor Ige uh, failed to fund it for several years this year uh, the House and Senate uh, couldn't come to an agreement. Will it, would it be $400,000? Would it be $500,000? Uh, and ultimately, they gave them nothing. That's not uncommon in the final hours of conference committee at the legislature when they're trying to figure out the budget. Bottom line, Governor Green has now stepped in with some temporary funding, about $413,000. But that's not a guarantee of future funding. Uh, the chair of the commission, uh, Mark Patterson, Uh, He's really concerned that this is going to be a problem going forward because uh, I I don't think there's anybody that would disagree, certainly not anyone listening to the conversation or reading Civil Beat, that our jails and prisons have some very serious problems. And this commission has some heavy hitters. You know, we've got uh, a retired uh, judge, Mark uh, Michael Town. You've got former uh, public safety director, Ted Sakai. You know, folks that are really, you know, with some knowledge about the system and, and how we need to fix it. Right, and Kristen Johnson, who is the oversight coordinator, has really done a remarkable job. Once they did get some full staff in place, and this is the 2021 number I was thinking about, well, guess what? They started actually visiting the jails, the prisons, uh, learning more, doing site tours, and you have heard Kevin's story. The mall here, but let's just go over a couple of these things. Serious problems with keeping medical records, uh, poor conditions in particular at the jail there in Hilo. Um, and of course, we know about those video cameras, a lack of them in the Women's Correctional Center. That has historically been a problem. And remember the sexual assault cases. Uh, these reports, all within the last 12 months or so, scathing. And then you start and go, well, gee, if everything is so bad, why is the legislature cutting the funding for this? It, it, it can't help but raise the question is there something? inconsistent here. We can tell you that the Attorney General's office has told Patterson, um, who runs the Hawaii Youth Correctional Facility, by the way, that they are going to make sure that uh, funding does come through on a more steady basis going forward. But big concern, new agency created by the Leds to do good work. Suddenly, there's no money to do it. 
And, you know, you and I both covered these legislative hearings, right? The problems at the, well, we had the uprising at the, the, the Maui mm. prison. And, you know, more recently, uh, Kevin has reported on, um, I think there was a, a, a recent death. Uh, beating by an inmate you yeah. know there were lawsuits upon lawsuits and uh, i'm just really scratching my head you know wondering why the federals uh, the uh, the feds don't step in and and uh, take oversight you know get oversight we'll see this. that could be the next report coming but uh you know we should also keep in mind that this commission the correctional system oversight commission was also created by a blue ribbon panel a task force it included judges included uh, prosecutors, it included people that were parole officers, people concerned about criminal justice reform. And we should bring up that aspect about the Oversight Commission, which is also key. It's not just about reporting the bad things that are going on, and which there are plenty, but also looking at how you could have a more uh, rehabilita rehabilitative system to help uh, keep people out of prison and jail once they do return to the, the private sector. But again, the funding has kept up a lot of their work. Uh, there was supposed to be a study to look at how many people can you put in a prison or jail? What should the cap be? They even wanted to travel to Arizona where we have 870 inmates last I checked, but nope, no funding for that as well. So plenty of things to do uh, in order to improve our systems. Uh, just, just drive by OCCC someday and, and take a look at it. Um, and it's really dilapidated. Yep, and we're still hand-wringing over, you know, building a new one there in Halava. Sure. So, yeah, uh, yeah, very troubled system, and, and hopefully uh, they can get this straight. Thank you, Catherine. All right, that was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-N, at CostcoHawaii.com. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had a strong start in his run for the GOP presidential nomination. DeSantis had a good elevator pitch for Republican voters when he got in the race, which was essentially, I will give you all the MAGA stuff you like and actually be effective at doing it. But is that strategy backfiring? Big donors are now abandoning DeSantis while Donald Trump's campaign rolls on. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. The sound of ice. It's not something we here in the tropics probably spend much time thinking about, but it's a real thing in Antarctica. Ask photographer Enzo uh, Baracco. He, st story goes, is that he nearly jumped out of his skin when part of a glacier collapsed near where he was taking pictures. Hence the name of his book, The Noise of Ice. He went uh, from being a high fashion photographer to a nature adventure inspired by an early Irish uh, scientific expedition. He found a muse in Mother Nature and is now a man on a mission. We caught up with him before fellow explorer Mark Blackburn began taking him around. Um, Baracko was a guest speaker for the local chapter of the Explorers Club this past weekend to talk about his adventures in the Antarctic and more recently the Galapagos. Blackburn explains how the Explorers Club got its start here. An early member of the National Club is John Henry Felix, and today the Hawaii chapter includes noted female scientists. Mark Blackburn leads us off. We are honored here in Hawaii to have a Hawaii chapter here that Gary Bowersox and I founded in December 2017. So we're one of 34 chapters in the world. 
And I'm very honored and privileged to be a chapter chair for Hawaii and been nominated twice. This is my last term. I'm very excited to have Enzo here to talk at our club. Another great thing about the club is that we actually have had or going to have two flag expeditions. So Gary Bowersox just came back from Tajikistan. And in February and March, I will be going to Antarctica with Petra Lenz and Angel Yangihara. And we will do, be doing a study in Antarctica on a Russian icebreaker uh, with a Russian captain and studying plankton and the impact of climate change on plankton. Well, we know Angel Yanigahara because of her work with jellyfish, but obviously Antarctica, what an incredible place to explore, and Enzo has spent some time there. Definitely, it was a change in my career. I was like a fashion photographer before when I was living in London, and very, very accidentally, I discovered the story of uh, Ernest Shackleton. Is like an incredible. He was an, an incredible explorer. Immediately, when I read these words, I totally sink in his story. You know, and uh, that inspired me so much to organize my own expedition in Antarctica. And definitely, when I come back, everything was changed. So now, what I do is just create a project about. Uh, conservation and sustainability and help a company to communicate the commitment they have uh, about the natural world through my work. It was an incredible privilege for Antarctica uh, have the foreword of uh, the, my book, The Noise of Ice, and the legendary uh, Serrano Finds. It's like an incredible privilege of him uh, on the board. And of course, Vogue Italia, because uh, I always bring uh, with me the, my fashion uh, background like for example like uh, my new project now my latest project is like uh, about the galapagos and uh, for this uh, i involve also like a lot of institution and museum but also prada is very interesting in uh, communicate again the commitment about the, our natural resource now na natural world and uh, so basically like that uh, is like what also i'd like to do in in hawaii so I'm very excited to unlock uh, the message of this kind of uh, incredible islands. As I was looking at the images online, you know, from your book, I was struck at kind of the similarities of nature and fashion. It's mother nature and she's got all her finery. I mean, I just remember one image that I saw of a glacier with, you know, a fringe of icicles and it just looked <laughs> lovely. It's interesting. I think you, you you mentioned probably the cover of the book. And that is very interesting because the the cover of the book is a, every, all of my work have two editorial line. Collector like for the beauty of the imaging and uh, science see the evidence of what is climate changing. In fact, that the photo is very beautiful, everyone like, but actually is the evidence of climate changing because the iceberg fighting to survive that was like an upside down iceberg and what you see in the photo was just like two days before was underwater for this it is a very unusual shape and if i arrive like two days after basically it was totally flat so i was very lucky in fact when i come back in london i show to british antarctica survey at the time it was like one of the the people involved for antarctica they never see something like that they tell me exactly what it was i say it was so beautiful but actually it's the evidence the iceberg tried to find to survive because basically when the iceberg melt lose the point of balance and rotate to set itself that was very, when I know that, was very, very impressed to see that, a witness that from my eye. So this really launched you on this activism for yeah. conservation to protect our natural resources. Raise awareness uh, through my work, through photography, and uh, about the natural world we have. My goal is like, uh, try to give like a surprise with the natural world, because we take it so much for granted. And I hope my work inspires people to to connect. And you must be excited to go. Uh, Angel is the vice chair of the local chapter, so oh, I want okay. to put a shout out to her. So it's exciting. I'm excited to work with uh, Enzo when he's here. I'm excited to work with the uh, National Worldwide Explorer Club. It's quite a privilege. 
and we do a lot of interesting projects. So this would be actually my second flag expedition, the first flag expedition I did to southern Laos in Fiji a number of years back. And then, so with this idea that, you know, Enzo is going to be creating a new project around Hawaii, I mean, I don't know, are you sending him places? <laughs> I've got a full schedule. <laughs> so we're off to the big island for one night, and we got a full schedule while he's here. And so we're just exploring ideas. I mean, obviously, after spending 42 years in Hawaii, I know a lot of interesting places, interesting people. So we're looking for just unusual experiences and the real soul of Hawaii, which sometimes is not seen. And so what are you looking forward to? I don't looking for nothing but I, I basically I hope the island surprise me and I'm open to see what the the beauty of this beautiful island want to give it to me. With the nature it's difficult to make a plan, you know, it's always you need to work with the natural timing of the nature. And uh, this is was my approach. Uh, in Antarctica, this was my approach in Galapagos. Definitely, I, I will do this the kind of approach also in Hawaii. So I just want I'm open to to see what the nature allowed me to to record and uh, always with the timing of the nature, with the respect of the nature. So you let the place speak to you. Exactly, exactly. Like, but I'm so excited because for the geographical position of Hawaii is very incredible. It's very incredible. Like we have like the most big volcano in the world. It's like uh, incredible in the middle of like uh, Pacific. Is uh, so exciting to start. Are you a good swimmer? <laughs> I'm a free diver. Yeah. Okay. So definitely, is uh, the ocean is uh, you know quite my element. So I love it. I, I grew up by the Mediterranean. Uh, the ocean gives me so much, and now it's time to give it back to the ocean. And this is why all my work is. Uh, around the ocean. You know, I started for Antarctica, of course, Antarctica influenced uh, all the current in the world and uh, not just that. Galapagos also like uh, for the incredible story of Charles Darwin uh, helped us to understand the, so much about uh, our evolution and now Hawaii, you know, for one of the more remote islands in the world and in the middle of a very important uh, marina life uh, crossing. We are fortunate that we have pretty temperate weather here. You know, the rest of the world is baking, you know, with record temperatures, but we're starting to feel the effects here. You know, Mark, you, you, you've seen, we've had our share of uh, unusual- uh, Very unusual climate events. And I just came from Texas and it was 121 degrees and it's oppressing, you know? So it's nice to get off the plane here, come back, and have such beautiful weather. And you know, every day I'm amazed because I'm a real cloud person just to look up in the sky and look at the beautiful clouds and the horizons. And I think most people miss that, right? We're very, very lucky to have that experience here. So. I am struck when I drive around, even though I'm sitting in traffic, I look up and you know, whether it's the Kotlaus or the Waianae mountain range, you can't help but just be so impressed by the beauty here. And sometimes I have to stop and pull out my camera. I know I shouldn't be doing it, but it's just it's just breathtaking. It is. And everybody's got such busy lives here. They rarely take the time out. And just look up to the sky and see the beautiful skyline, the clouds. I mean, I'm a, I'm a very big cloud person. Of course, Constable was the first painter to ever paint clouds, really, and understand clouds. But the clouds, the, the horizon lines here are always amazing. You're never disappointed. I think that we have a great opportunity to have fresh eyes on our island state, you know, and then coming from the places that you have, I'd be curious to see, you know, what you put together and what speaks to you as you look around uh, the island. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, me too, me too, because like as we think, uh, we know nature. Nature is uh, always have the capacity to surprise you. When I was in Antarctica, I thought, uh, I said, nothing can surprise me in the natural world because what I witnessed, what happened, it was very incredible. But when I go to Galapagos immediately, I realized I was wrong. <laughs> so, and now I have the same kind of approach with Hawaii and definitely Hawaii will surprise me once again. What I love is when you drive around at different times of the day, the light just really makes the island sparkle in so many ways that, you know, you, you, you can drive by the same mountain range or, or the, a stretch of beach, but when you see it in a different light, it's just magic. It's all yeah. about atmospherics. And I think a lot of people, it's lost on a lot of people. 
because it's just so crazy. Everybody's crazy, busy, the traffic and everything. But if everybody would just take 10 seconds out and look around and look at the atmospherics, look at the light, look at the clouds, look at the horizon lines, and it's very, you know, very contemplative and it's very settling, right? Go outside, go explore where you live. And, uh, and take your attention and look the nature, because uh, that is what we miss, as Mark said, we miss uh, the connection. In my opinion, and this is why my work try to, in a very small scale, try to uh, raise awareness about the beauty of our natural world. But uh, I think I totally agree with the Mark, like we forget to take a time to look at the nature and uh, very simple that. Well, the best muse is, is Mother Nature. <laughs> I, I totally Absolutely. agree with you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for carving out some time of your day and uh, and visiting with us. And we'll look forward to your project. Thank you. Thank you to having me. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, Explorers Club Mark Blackburn and fashion photographer Enzo Baracco talking with us about a project that the noted photographer is working on in Hawaii. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Scientists will attempt a first-of-its-kind controlled re-entry of an old satellite orbiting Earth. So why bring the obsolete equipment home? The details are in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive and fascinating universe surrounding our tiny but sometimes equally fascinating planet, and as usual, turning to the uh, astronomy skills of Christopher Phillips and welcoming him back right now. Chris, welcome back. What do you have in your bag of tricks this week? Hey Dave, it's good to be here. So this week's Stargazers, look out for Venus in the west after sunset along with Mars. Also, keep an eye out for Saturn rising in the east at around 9 p.m. The moon this week will be passing through its first quarter phase, and so conditions for stargazing will become more challenging as the week goes on. Now, I don't know if this next thing is going to be visible or not, but it sure sounds interesting to learn about from you. There is a piece of space gear up there that is going to be coming down? Oh, yeah. A defunct weather observation satellite known as Aeolus will attempt a complex maneuver that will bring it crashing to Earth in the first descent of its kind. The satellite was part of the European Space Agency's climate science endeavor, and it has been performing exceptional data collection and was the first spacecraft to measure the winds of Earth from space. Its final act will be to demonstrate that a controlled re-entry of a satellite is possible. I'm thinking this is not going to land as part of this maneuver. Yeah, definitely not. By <laughs> controlled re-entry, we mean that we can direct the satellite to a specific region on Earth, in this case, a remote area of the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, only 20% of the spacecraft is thought to actually survive the re-entry attempt, <laughs> with the rest burning up in the atmosphere. And explain why do this exactly, instead of letting the thing just careen around the planet, I guess, and be another piece of giant junk up there. Well, you just hit on it. As you know, space junk is a major hazard to orbital traffic and human spaceflight. Right now, there are around 10,000 spacecraft in orbit around planet Earth at various altitudes, and about 2,000 of these are non-functional. That's about 11,000 tons of space junk. If we can design satellites with systems that will enable them to be brought back to Earth in a safe manner, we will make space safer for everyone and everything. So what you're saying is they need to incentivize it so people can make a profit off of going up there and retrieving this stuff. <laughs> well, the thought is, is that we can design these satellites with systems in place before we send them up there. I get it, right? so that we can bring them down <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> and talk about the uh, satellite maneuvering down. When Aeolus was designed, it was designed with this scenario in mind as a demonstration that this is possible and sensible. It has a reserve of maneuvering fuel that can push the craft into an ideal position for re-entry. Well, we're hoping for success on this, correct? Indeed. Humans have a habit of polluting the places we touch, and re-entry systems like this give us a chance to clean up the only pristine place we have left, the space around our planet. As the saying goes, pack out what you pack in. Right, or pollution in space is poppycock. 
It's Christopher Phillips and another fascinating Stargazer, and thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can catch Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. For a hundred years, the creative talent of a power couple in the Hawaii art world has been out there for all of us to enjoy. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us to talk about a new exhibit opening downtown. Hi. Good morning, Captain. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're talking about the Kellys. Yeah, they're a very interesting couple, and this was my first time actually getting to know them through the lens of Chaw Smith, who... I believe married into the Kelly family. I think it was the daughter, granddaughter, don't quote me on that mm-hmm. one. And so John and Kate Kelly, they've been documenting Native Hawaiian culture through art since they moved to Hawaii from San Francisco, California in 1923. John was an etcher and also a graphic artist who worked at the San Francisco Examiner and then eventually the Star Bulletin. And Kate was a sculptor and a photographer, although her photography wasn't as well-known. She actually sculpted more to provide for her family once John quit his job at the Star Bulletin to pursue his line of art, which is etching. And so last week, I went to the Kelly's home in Kahala. It's this historical home, this this cute shingle brown home that overlooks the ocean. Um, and they live, Cha Smith lives there with um, with Colleen and their dog, Pixie. <laughs> it's a cute um, pointer dog. <laughs> um, but uh, Cha is now working to digitalize these photographs that she found of Kate Kelly's and um, they were found in this box full of um, envelopes and that's where she uncovered actually some historical photos of laymakers in Hawaii and um, you could see photos of Aloha Tower in the background and these photos were taken in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. That's really one of the themes at the exhibit is that they both went down to Aloha Tower to take photographs and, you know, John just wanted to observe what was happening there as they were making lei and selling lei. And part of this story is the fact that Hawaiian people were kind of forced into this industry because they were had lost so much land. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of a, it was a bittersweet thing because it was gorgeous that they were doing this beautiful work. But at the same time, they were having to sell it to tourists who were you know, just here for a visit and didn't have any idea, you know, what was going on with these families who were forced to sell late for a living. It was a lot of fun talking with Cha Smith. She's the manager of the John and Kay Kelly estate collection and talking to her, it was actually nice to get to know John and Kay Kelly who passed away in the 1960s through her lens, but she was telling their story like she was actually there, which made their story more compelling, and they definitely were a power couple. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a John Kelly print, and it was fun for me to discover uh, her art as well. Um, But it does give you a glimpse into, you know, that bit of Hawaii history. It really does, and getting to see more of John and Kate Kelly's art, they actually complement each other. So when I saw a lot of John's etchings, I think some of it was also watercolor, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, they're beautiful. A lot of them actually are similar to Kate Kelly's photography. And I found out from Cha Smith that Kate's photography of fisher fishermen folks and uh, surfers and um, even folks who are dancing hula, Kate's photography actually inspired John Kelly's uh, etchings which was really neat to see in person. And you look at the side-by-side, we're gonna see that in the upcoming exhibit on August 1st. We'll see more of that side-by-side of John's etchings and Kate Kelly's uh, photographies and how similar they really are. We should mention that this exhibit is coming to the Downtown Art Center. It is. Um, the exhibit will be open from August 1st to August 13th at the Downtown Art Center. And the opening reception will be um, August 4th from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Saturday through Sunday. Yeah, anything else? Um, a lot of 
I did mention that a lot of um, uh, John's art complements Kate's photography, and what the public will see is more of their art that hasn't been seen before. It really focuses on premieres, that art that has not been seen before. So there's an oil painting that's never been seen, two watercolors that are brand new to the world, and all of Kate's photos. But about half of the of John's etchings that'll be on exhibit are premiere images. So. There's a lot of new stuff for people to see. Yeah, and I was fortunate to cover uh, you know, Kate Kelly's exhibit down there at the Downtown Art Center, so it'd be really nice to see more of the of, of both of their work. What's interesting about this exhibit is that John and Kate Kelly's art was displayed last in 2021, and the theme was centered around hula. At least with this coming art, it's going to showcase a more a, a diversity of their art. Yeah, but uh, incredible to see. So. Uh, we encourage folks who are uh, John Kelly fans. Uh, you will become Kate Kelly fans if you have not, uh, you know, been if you're not familiar with her work. But it, yeah, it's uh, I'm sure wonderful exhibit to see side by side. It definitely is. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. We have been talking to HPR's Cassie Ordonio about the John and Kate Kelly photography exhibit at the Downtown Art Center. You can uh, read more of uh, Cassie's stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Tomorrow, we plan to hear about a stewardship fee that the state is about to launch. Who gets charged and where will the money go? Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation podcast on our website or wherever you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.